We didn't get it right for a long time. It felt scarier than it was to not get it right. That's Jesse Middleton. He's a startup founder and one of the early executives at WeWork who tackled a bunch of growth and operational challenges before launching WeWork Labs, their own global startup accelerator, investment fund, and business and digital product development lab. Jesse shares a bunch of critical lessons learned in the early days of building WeWork and the challenges they faced with their message in trying to reach the right types of customers before co-working was more widely understood. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today, we're speaking with Jesse Middleton, a general partner of Flybridge Capital Partners. But before jumping into the world of venture capital, Jesse launched and sold a few companies of his own and then spent five years as part of the early team at WeWork, growing the company from a few buildings to a worldwide network and pioneer of the co-working and remote work industries. Jesse joins us to share his story, what it was like building WeWork and WeWork Labs, what it was like transitioning into venture capital, his two investment rules at Flybridge, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, Franco and I are extremely excited to have the chance to speak with you and hear about your experience building WeWork, and in particular, WeWork Labs, as well as what it's like investing with Flybridge Capital today. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a bit more about where you're from and what did you study? Yeah, so I grew up in Pennsylvania in the U.S. in a tiny little town called the Village of Pleasant Valley. It probably about 20 houses in it, mostly farmland. And, and I say that I, I likely got into technology because it was pretty boring uh, for me. I didn't really want to be outside that much or getting dirty. So so I dove into, into computers uh, at a very young age, about six years old. I got my first I would call it, I wouldn't even call it a computer today. It, it was a Texas Instruments uh, electronic word processor, but you were able to do a couple little programs on it. So, uh, so I got into it then and I grew up in that area, spent my whole childhood there. And when I went to college, I decided to move to Philadelphia, which was about an hour from where I lived, maybe an hour and a half and uh, went to Drexel to study business and then eventually management information systems, which was this blend of business and technology degree. But uh, I actually dropped out two and a half, maybe three years into college to start working full time. And, and so I, I never actually completed that degree, which I now wear, I think is a badge of honor, but spent many years arguing with my grandparents about not not having it. <laughs> yeah, that one's always tricky. So where did your passion for tech and startups come from? I guess it came through a couple of things. I mean, number one, I was just, I've always been very intellectually curious and very much a, a sort of problem solver. So I, I like to tinker with things, take them apart, put them back together. And, um, and so when I was, when I was very young, my parents saw I was really into this. They got me that Texas Instruments word processor. Not that long after a teacher in my elementary school, uh, gave, offered to give us an Apple 2E computer because I was playing with these machines at school a lot. They had an old machine that needed to be fixed. They said, you know, if Jesse can fix it up, he can have it. And so that was sort of my entry point into working with technology. And as a couple of years passed when I was still fairly young, I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, I got into sort of looking at, at the time was bulletin board systems. I've got a couple stories of kind of computer hacking in the earliest days. 
uh, under my belt. But I, but I think that I started to look at how software was sort of changing how we would operate. And so my parents were small business owners. And I started to look at how software would help them operate better and run their business better. I met through our local community, a couple of other small business owners who were also trying to figure out how to operate their businesses better. And so got into web development, got into what today would be called like software integration. Um, but at the time, it was really helping these businesses migrate their stuff onto computers. Right? They were going from you know a, a pad paper to something eventually that looked like QuickBooks or it was FileMaker Pro or something like that to manage their customers. And so that's, that's really where it all began. And then over sort of my later childhood as I got into high school, I got into more advanced technologies. I joined this club that we had around robotics. And there's a group called uh, US First, which is a global uh, robotics competition that happened. So we got into that and continued to progress down the path to just learning more and more about how the architecture of computers worked, how eventually the architecture of the internet worked, and really dove into that industry kind of on my own even before I went to college. Um, I started a web hosting company when I was 16, ran that for a couple of years, uh, actually sold it as I went to college, which I think maybe paid for some of my beer throughout college. And, um, and, and yeah, just really stayed in technology since. That's awesome. So after college and early into your career, you decided to launch another company before joining WeWork and then founding WeWork Labs. So can you tell us more about those early startup days and how you created the opportunity to join WeWork? Yeah, so I, I credit this bit of learning from the guy who was my co-founder in what we called WeWork Labs, who was my co-conspirator in the early days of WeWork, with this concept of, I think to some extent, you you make your own luck. So I talk about this a lot with entrepreneurs, like most of their success is going to be from luck. And it's unfortunate to think that way, but like it's generally the truth, right? The markets could change, you know, personal things could come up, things you're trying to build could not work and you have to restart, whatever it is, a lot of it's luck, but you do get to build your own luck and you get to put yourself in the right situation in order to get that lucky break or that lucky moment. And so for me, that came from, I was running technology for a company in New York called Live Person. I decided to leave there to start a company that I was pretty passionate about, which centered around medication adherence for the elderly community. The broader idea was for the underserved technology community, so mostly the elderly. And I left Live Person to pursue this concept. And I went out and I raised a little bit of money from kind of what you would call friends and family um, and some local angels in New York City. And I set out in search of a place to build this company. I had one co-founder at the time. We needed a place to work. And this friend of mine, Matt, who I referenced earlier, said, hey, I just found this office uh, in Soho at Grand and Lafayette. It's in this cool old building. It's called WeWork. I found it on Craigslist, uh, which is how we sold WeWork in the early days. And uh, you should come by and check it out. And maybe you and Mike was the name of my co-founder of the company. So maybe you and Mike would want to come and, and work here with me uh, in this space. So I went down there. WeWork had a single floor open. Adam and Miguel, the two founders, were there. And very quickly, two things happened. One was, you know, I put myself in this situation where I was saying, you know, I'm this young tech guy. Uh, I know technology. I know how tech can affect businesses, how it can make businesses more effective, more efficient. And I'm looking for a place to work. And quickly, Adam really latched onto the fact that 
there were other people that looked like me in New York City that were young startup founders building technology companies, and Adam had no background in tech. He did have a clear idea, though, that technology would be a core component of the success of what would eventually become you know, what WeWork is today, which we can talk a little bit about. But really, he was looking for people to help with that. And so we sat down and he made a proposal to me, which was, you know, why don't you and your co-founder come here? Why don't we create a space for you two to work? And you can invite a bunch of other friends who are also young tech founders. And you can all work together in a space, help each other out. WeWork is very much about community from the beginning, the idea of supporting one another. And he's like, and we can all support each other. So I'll give you guys all a deal on the space that you're going to work in. And in return, you know, you can be my kind of eyes and ears and hands when it comes to, you know, thinking about how technology will eventually affect this business. And so we started our relationship sort of very informally, kind of, I, I refer to it now as like, I was an advisor slash friend of WeWork. But what it really turned into is very quickly, it was, you know, many, many hours a week, probably a full time job of helping in all different areas as WeWork started to grow. And about a year and a half into that relationship, um, I was able to sell the startup that I had. And I decided, uh, along with my buddy, Matt, uh, we decided to focus on working on WeWork full time. But all of this really came out of this like lucky moment in time time where, you know, I chose to leave live person at the right time. I chose to start a company at the right time. I chose to to go and seek out this space and to open myself up to this opportunity. But at the end of the day, each one of those things, like, you know, Steve Jobs famously says, you can look behind you and connect the dots. But <laughs> I was surely not connecting the dots in front of me. Uh, at the time, I wanted a good deal on a space to work with other people that were also trying to build startups. Um, and that was pretty much it. And I, I really just kind of lucked into uh, meeting Adam, Miguel, and the rest of the team from WeWork and, and getting involved that way. That's amazing. What a great story. So once you did sell the startup that you were working on and decided to join WeWork in more of an official capacity and start working on WeWork Labs, what was that experience like? What were some of the early challenges you were trying to solve and, and projects that you were launching? Yeah, so I've never given up that skill of being a, a really good kind of problem solver. And so over the five years or so that I was working on WeWork full time, I worked on about, I always have to go back and recount, but five different kind of major groups and projects. And the first one that we really started with was that concept of WeWork Labs. It was this concept of an incubator that we had for WeWork, where we would bring young startup founders together to work together, to grow together. But the second project after that was really to head up and lead our business development efforts. And in the earliest days of WeWork, that meant things like sponsorship for events. It meant relationship building with potential partners that could, you know, work alongside us that needed to use space for things other than offices. So we looked at early on education, which eventually became a big relationship with General Assembly. We looked at things like fitness. We looked at other incubators. So Columbia University put their incubator inside of WeWork. And so those are the types of relationships that we were looking for. Um, so the second group I, I led was business development. The third was actually our first take on product. And so digital product. And, and I say, you know, I started out as a friend and advisor but that role of helping us to think about technology and how it related to our business really followed with me all the way through my journey at WeWork. And so the second kind of formal role was really leading product efforts and actually developing our first, what we called at the time was called WeWork Anywhere, but it was our first foray into building a membership that went beyond the four walls of WeWork. So for those 
of you don't know sort of about WeWork, WeWork is really this sort of platform and space and experience for people to build companies and build what we would say in WeWork is your life's work, but to build businesses together. And so today, WeWork has 135,000 entrepreneurs who work inside of a WeWork building somewhere in the world, uh, everywhere from China to Mexico, across the US and Europe. But at the time, we had, you know, couple buildings in New York and building in San Francisco. And it was still a blossoming network where people would work together. And so we had this idea, which was to extend that network to people who weren't yet in a WeWork city or who didn't yet need a WeWork space for whatever they were doing. So that was my second role there. And what was interesting about that role is it's extraordinarily difficult to think about. I, I really can't think of another technology product whose value is worth upwards of, you know, eight to $10,000 a year per user. You know, if we look at Facebook, they have billions of users, but each user is worth $7 a year. Um, and so when you're building technology for an audience who's spending that much money to be a part of your product and your experience, like you are at WeWork, the way you think about technology and the way you think about products is just vastly different from anything else. Every button press in an app or on the web, every request that you make to this product is potentially worth tens of or hundreds of dollars. And so you sort of think about not just the product quality, but the actual impact to their bottom line quality. And so there was a really interesting learning experience for me and it actually helped me to really understand why we work could be so valuable why the network that was being built across WeWork could be so valuable and, and today that 80 percent of people inside of WeWork actually do business with one another, which is a pretty phenomenal number. If you think of hundreds of thousands of people spread out around the world all working together, a lot of that happening across this technology platform that now exists, we were just getting started then. So that was my sort of second formal role in inside of WeWork. From there, I went on to uh, doing a couple of other things. My background, as I said, was in tech. So the only role that I ever held at WeWork that was actually in line with what I knew <laughs> in my past career was I led our IT organization for a bit as we built that up and then was tasked with something that I knew nothing about. And I would argue that today I still know nothing about was to lead our sales organization. Up until about our fourth year of running WeWork, we didn't have a formal sales organization or process. There was a ton of inbound interest to WeWork. Um, I see this in a couple of the companies that I'm invested in now in the earliest days. The idea is exciting. There's a lot of buzz. You see all this inbound interest and all this inbound traffic, and you really don't think about the sales process. But eventually, you know, you hit a wall where at the time we we sat down and we looked at, you know, how many leads are we getting a day? And I believe it was somewhere in the vicinity of about a thousand people a day were reaching out to WeWork. Right? They were emailing, they were calling, they were submitting their information on the web. So these are not website visitors. These are people who have actually chosen to take action to get a hold of WeWork. And we had no process built to handle that. And so the group that I started, what we called New Member Development, but it was really our inside sales organization. And the idea was to really both use technology and process to build a structure that would enable us to respond to you know, thousands of people a day uh, who were interested in WeWork, which would eventually lead to where do we put our next buildings, what products do we need to develop, and what solutions do people need when they're reaching out to WeWork, which you know leads to some product strategy, to some location strategy, to pricing strategy, and a number of other things. So I did that. And then the last thing I did before leaving was I started to become interested in investing. You know, I'd seen 
thousands of companies at that point come through WeWork. And I started to think about how I might be able to have an impact as an investor in some of these young companies, in particular the ones that I knew something about. So young tech companies, you know, I wasn't super knowledgeable about running a restaurant or, or something like that, but I, but I knew something about technology. And so I started to invest on my own and through that process wound up actually leading our corporate development efforts at WeWork, which was our kind of M&A and innovation things. And, um, and did that for about a year and sort of at the end of that year realized that what I really loved doing was investing. And so at the beginning of last year, stepped down to pursue investing full time. And that's what I've been doing since then. Wow, there's definitely a lot of stuff packed in there. But as you said, it's definitely easier to connect the dots looking backwards. And I'm sure the experience of going through all those roles at the time was really exciting. But before we dive into the investment side of things you were just mentioning, I just want to go further on the challenges of growing WeWork. Today, co-working and flexible office spaces make a lot of sense. But at the time, what were some of the biggest challenges you guys were trying to solve as a young company, trying to put some of these pieces together and really build that network? Yeah. So so I think the first challenge that every startup faces is, and it sounds a little corny, but is you don't you don't know what you don't know. And I think as a fast growing company, the scariest part about that is that you think a lot, you try to plan ahead about all the things you might not know. So you, you try to fix things early in the process. And I think we were very fortunate that we grew we grew so fast we didn't really have the resources to go back and rebuild things at the moment in time where we thought about rebuilding them it, it came back to haunt us later so i think you know i use the sales you know the sales story as an example up until a moment in time we didn't even have an idea of the demand that we had for our product. And as soon as we figured that out, we realized that our challenge was that we had no process, we had no systems, we didn't have any people to manage that demand. And so I think we had this across basically every part of the organization at one point or another, where you wake up one morning and you realize this thing is a challenge. And because we've grown so quickly, to fix this challenge requires you to sort of, the, the, there's a saying, you know, repairing the, the engine of an airplane while in flight, requires you to fix things as everybody's moving forward. And so I think the number one challenge was not knowing what we didn't know led us to having to make these huge changes while the company was still scaling at like an exponential rate. Um, it's a good problem to have. I, I look at it now and think to myself, I, I would not want to have any other problem in the world, but the we're growing too quickly uh, challenge. I wish that for everybody, but I think it, it is something that, that becomes very scary and you're constantly putting out fires. So th that was the number one the second big thing I think that we worked really hard on, and I would argue WeWork has become very good at it at this point, but it took a very long time, is when you have a really, really big sort of world-changing concept. Um, and, I, and I say this not to be, not to boast, but more to say when the idea that you have requires so many things to come together. This is, you're talking about building a company that's being run like a technology company that literally designs, you know, acquires, designs, builds out, and then eventually fills physical buildings all over the world. There's a lot of moving pieces there. We're not just writing lines of code into Xcode and, and releasing an app to the App Store. Um, that is a component of it. When you have all of that, it's extraordinarily hard to get the messaging right. And something we struggled with for a long time, and 
was was this balance of sharing the vision with the world and the idea that the goal was to build this the largest most valuable most useful network of professionals all over the world who could build things that they cared about living a way of life that they wanted to live together balancing that message and that story with the you can come here and get an office for you and your team to come and work together you know and build whatever you're building you know one of these is a very uh, internal you know you're speaking to somebody at a level that is all about passion and feeling you know an ethos uh, and and the other one is speaking to somebody about an immediate need and I think that for a long time we would go back and forth on it whether it was how we talked about the company itself, you know, when we when we actually spoke about it, what our website said, you know, what we'd say on the telephone, what our marketing material would say, all of these things, you know, played this crazy balancing act around this. And I think the thing that I realized is, you know, we we didn't get it right for a long time. It felt scarier than it was to not get it right. But I think that it's something that I talk to some of the companies, some of the founders that I'm invested in now who are going through similar challenges where it's how early do we need to really nail that brand and that story down and that messaging or how valuable is our product without having that nailed down. And I think that we ultimately did a really great job and we there's all of these different aspects of we work and we live that now come out, you know, in different areas of how you know buildings are designed and how the website talks about it and the content and the events that we work holds. They're doing this year the thing called the Creator Awards, which is giving away twenty million dollars to, you know, young companies, service businesses, nonprofits. You know, that's a part of the brand and a part of the ethos. Not something we could do in the earliest days. We didn't have twenty million dollars to give away. But uh, you know, there were other things that we did, whether it was the type of you know, happy hour we threw versus a breakfast. These are all things that go into that messaging and that brand. And I think that we struggled for a really long time nailing that down. And it probably took, you know, years off our life because of it, because of the battles back and forth. But in the end, it turns out it was a really valuable exercise, really healthy way to bring us to what, you know, WeWork stands for and is today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important message to share, even if it doesn't feel like it's quite coming together, you know, all at once, it's important to keep iterating and continually refining that message. And you'll end up getting there. Yeah. And ultimately, you you hit the nail on the head. It's it's if you keep moving forward, this goes back to the message about, you know, luck and you it's a lot of luck. And it's a lot of if you continue to move forward for a long time and you continue to push and break through walls, you'll likely luck on to, you know, luck into the sort of right path because you'll try them all, right? Like we're human beings. We're actually pretty good pattern recognizers. It's one thing we still tend to beat machines at. And so you try it over and over again and, and uh, you know, you can sort of spot success even if you don't know what success is. And so you, you know, when you finally find it's the way that somebody lights up when you talk to them about your product or your business, there's a certain way that they light up when it really makes sense to them. And when you see that happen, it immediately clicks with you. And that's the story that you use going forward until the next time it clicks and you, you know, and it adapts. Um, I will say though, the one thing I caution people with is we did, we were not spending all that time changing our mission, right? We were spending that time changing our messaging, our brand and the story that we told. But our mission has pretty much stayed the same since the beginning. And I think that's actually pretty important. You know, it was and still is the guiding light. You know, without that, I think we would have made far worse decisions uh, along the way if we if we sort of had not kept that mission like true. 
So keeping all that in mind, how were you guys approaching growth? Was it all organic or how would you get the word out in terms of each new location launching in the network? And and overall, how are you attracting the right types of people to either come work out of a WeWork location or join WeWork Labs? Uh, <laughs> the short answer is through hell or high water. Um, I mean, we tried everything, right? And we were fortunate that we didn't, through much of our existence, we didn't have to do sort of any traditional marketing, I would say. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, buying SEM and banner ads were just not a huge part of our of our business. But what we did need to do was was teach people about a different way of life. So we, you know, we used to say what we're competing against are not other co-working spaces or your garage or the Starbucks. We're actually competing against you choosing the path, which is sitting at a company for 20 years, working in a cubicle, not doing that thing that you really enjoyed doing or loved doing, not feeling like you were creating good in the world and and sort of creating value in the world. And that's not an easy thing to sell someone. You don't, you typically don't put that on a billboard. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so I think we predominantly leveraged experience and we were fortunate the core of our product was physical space. So inside of a city, once you had one building, uh, you could host events, you could partner with organizations, you could bring people together over drinks, or breakfast or or learning sessions uh, you could throw parties that brought people together over common you know events i remember we used to do things like do parties around the world cup and and bring people together who love sports uh we used to do halloween events we still do a massive halloween party every year you know most most people in the u.s at least they they really enjoy halloween uh, so that was a good thing in new york to do um and so a lot of it was experiential but i mean when i say experiential i mean we delivered coffee to people on their commute to their job, you know, just explaining to them like, hey, you know, have this coffee on us, enjoy your day, you know, you should be doing the thing that you love doing. If you don't love what you're doing now, you should you should consider another path and there is another path, there's another way to live. And so I think we steered clear of traditional marketing for a long time. And it was the right plan because I think you can fall into this whole of like spending money dollars to get clicks or you know the cpa buy and and ultimately it doesn't create a lasting brand and a lasting message it, it gives you like little pops and you can maybe fill a couple seats in the case of we work but what you really want are people to start to live the way that you know we believed was a better way of living and so when i think about why we did that um some of it was limited capital in the early days. So we couldn't spend a ton of money online on, on digital ads or billboards or buying subway cars. But a lot of it goes back to that sort of guiding mission and principle. And the goal was not to just fill desks. It was to bring people into this environment who actually wanted to work close to each other, who wanted to collaborate. And that was no different in WeWork Labs. The only thing with WeWork Labs was it was a little bit more focused. It was a lot more focused on people working on early stage technology companies because we felt that we could bring together common resources they would need. Like my parents are small business owners. They don't need Amazon Web Service credits. Uh, they probably don't need to talk to the Microsoft engineering team from Bing or from the Google AdSense group. They don't need to be venture capitalists or angel investors uh, for their business. So we tried to bring a group of people together with that same ethos, and that same desire as the rest of WeWork, but we tried to pull together those people that were building young tech companies where we thought we could be uniquely helpful to them. That's really amazing to hear the entire journey and the challenges you've overcome. Funny enough, we were just open in Toronto. And as a freelance product designer, I've gone to work from the location quite a few times since it's open. And it's been an amazing experience from end to end for me. 
So kudos to you and the rest of the team. So as you mentioned, you developed an interest in the investment side of things. And today, you're one of the general partners at Flybridge Capital. How did you create the opportunity to join the team there? Over the years that we were building WeWork, I think one thing that I that I realized is I love spending time with people, even more so than I probably realized before Like I kind of left college. like I really enjoy being around other people and intellectually stimulating people, people that are building things, that are creating things from nothing. And so over the time that we were building WeWork, I think I started to spend a lot of time with other startup founders and the people that they surrounded themselves with. And that led me to... You know, forming a, a pretty tight knit group of friends who were investors uh, in these tech companies. Um, in some ways, they were mentors to me. In some ways, they were friends. But people that were doing something that I kind of had this inkling in the back of my head I might want to do in the future. So, as I mentioned, when I when I started investing as an angel a few years ago, uh, I went to these people. I actually did a trip across the country over the course of a couple of weeks and visited friends in San Francisco, and L.A., and Boston, New York, uh, Austin, and people that were in the venture world. And I said, listen, I'm, I think that I want to be an investor in early stage companies and I want to learn from you. Like, tell me what I should know. You know, how do I be, how do I become a good investor? And over the course of those conversations became very close to a few of those people. And when I, when I left WeWork earlier last year, I set out to invest to spend my time investing full time in in startups. I knew I wanted to come in at the earliest stage. I wanted to be, you know, somewhere just above an angel. I wanted to have a little bit more impact and I wanted to be a career, but I didn't want to be a late stage, you know, growth investor. Um, I actually really dislike opening up Excel. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a numbers person. I didn't go to business school. Um, and so I kind of looked around at what were what were the opportunities? And one path was, you know, starting a new fund. Another one was continuing to invest in my own. And one of the ones that sort of appeared was uh, a, a good friend of mine and mentor, this guy David Aronoff, who was a partner at Flybridge already, uh, was helping me think through what my venture career might look like. And it just so turns out that he, along with my other two partners, were at that moment in time thinking about what the future of Flybridge was. Because one thing that you should know about Flybridge is the firm's been around for over 15 years. My partners have been working together for over 20 years. So they've been doing this venture thing a long time. And they've seen you know kind of three full cycles of this world of venture. And they were looking for a new partner, someone that was sort of a generation young somebody that had this experience in New York City, we wanted to invest more in New York City, somebody who had some level of investment experience, somebody who had been a part of a, of a big, you know, kind of successful company already. So I had some level of helpful knowledge. I, I joke, I, I know, I know very little about a lot of things. And so I think there is some level of knowing a bit more about building a company from kind of the ground to, you know, series C, series D that I actually knew a little bit more about. And so David and I were having uh, lunch one day and, you know, he asked me if, if joining, he along with his other two partners, uh, Chip, and Jeff was was something that I would be interested in, and I immediately responded with no, thank you. And uh, and I, uh, I I was I had my heart set on starting a brand new fund. Uh, that was the path I thought I wanted to take. And instead of turning away at that opportunity, um, David said, "Great, let me help you build that fund, and let my partners and I help you uh, build that fund." And spent the next couple of months giving me advice, helping me sort of navigate the world of building a venture fund, which is vastly different from building a startup. 
And a couple months into that process, I realized actually I really enjoyed working with the three of them. And we came back together and decided to become partners together. So there are now four of us that run Flybridge together, two of us in Boston, two of us here in New York. And um, our focus is really to be like the first institutional, most helpful, valuable venture check to come into companies. Uh, And we'll usually invest, most of our investments are in New York or Boston, a handful in LA or San Francisco. But we really, we love being here in the Northeast, not too far from Toronto. And, and you know, we, we really love to be some of the earliest investors in companies. Um, in some cases, we're investing before uh, the founder has even incorporated the company. We're agreeing to invest. So we're coming in very early um, and we want to be a part of their, their story kind of all the way through if we can be. That's really cool. So what are what do you look for when deciding to invest in a startup? And what are some of the spaces you're actively interested in exploring right now? Yeah, so so I'll answer that kind of backwards, which is there are very few spaces that I'm not willing to look at investing in. I think that where my interests lie are a little bit dictated by, maybe a lot dictated by the last 10 years of my life. They're centered around how is work changing? How is living changing? How is consumption of products changing? I'm 31 years old. And so I buy like a millennial. I'd rather have a, uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather not buy a home. I'd rather take a trip and have an experience. Um, and so ultimately, sort of where where my interest lies is in that future of work, future of consumption area. But I would say that we kind of look across the stack because my other three partners have deep interest in lots of other areas from AI and robotics, uh, machine learning to um, developer platforms. Uh, and one of them focuses on kind of the future of the internet and how the internet is shifting and how technology will change much deeper tech, far more technical than I am. As far as what I look for, though, is, and I'm still learning, to be honest, if you ask me a couple of years from now, when I'm a few years into my venture career, I'll probably have a different answer. But right now, I think the two things that we look for are, one, is the market or the opportunity big enough? So the question is not so much, could you build a big business in this space? It's, are there enough people in the world that have the same problem, that it's worth pursuing it. I go back to that mission that we had at WeWork, you know, which is help people to create a life and not just a living. Are there enough people in the world who this problem resonates in a way that they would change their lives for it? You know, with WeWork, the answer is yes. There are enough people in the world who would prefer to work in a different environment with other people. And therefore, there was something that could be built that was valuable enough and big enough and in, and demand enough. So the first one is the market big enough, is the, is the desire for this thing big enough. Usually in the earliest days of a company, you're making that decision on gut. There's some amount of data, but it's a lot of gut decision. The second component is really who are the founders. And when I say who are the founders, we have a rule as a firm, which is we won't invest in assholes. I don't know if you mind me cursing, but I but I did. Um, and so, you know, we, we want to invest in people that we would love to spend the next 10 years with. We would love to spend the entire journey with them. We would work for them. We will work for them. You know, we will do work for them once we're investors. And so we look at people who are like that, who are also resilient, and who I think one of the key markers of, of a successful founder is somebody who can make really difficult decisions with limited information. So the two things that predominantly we're looking for are market size and, and sort of founder integrity. And 
both of those things are they're personal to some extent they're gut they're they're made on gut and ultimately you know we'll be wrong a lot of the time hopefully not the no asshole rule we try not to we try to be pretty strict about that but in the rest of it we'll, we'll be wrong a lot of the time and that's part of this business um and we'll come back and we'll back those founders again the next time when they have a really big idea and they're deeply passionate about something and they're ready to go but those are the two major things that we look at when we're investing you know as seed investors kind of the first institutional check that's awesome and exciting to hear. Really looking forward to, you know, what's next for Flybridge and yourself over the coming years. So since we've covered a lot of ground in this episode already, do you have any final thoughts or words of advice for other entrepreneurs out there building their own thing or looking for investment? Yeah, I think, well, let me, I'll, I'll give two pieces. I'll give one to people building their own thing uh, and the other one to people that are looking to raise capital because they're not necessarily one and the same. To people who are building things, I think, I think human beings are innately afraid of the answer no or to fail. And I think it's one of the worst things for an entrepreneur to be afraid of. And so if you're going out there to build something, know that in the earliest stages, you are likely wrong about basically every assumption that you have. And don't be afraid to test those assumptions and to fail. I'm not saying you should, you know, bet the horse each time, but to try different things. And, you know, they may come in the form of running a small test, you know, building a small product. They may come in the form of just asking people. So, you know, not being afraid of a no, like, would you use this thing? Would it make your life better? Better. The answer is no, it's okay. You use that, you learn from it, and you adapt. So I think when you're building something, it's easy to get locked into an idea and to just power through it and to not ask the question like, is this actually the right thing for me to be building at this time? On the raising venture capital side or raising capital in general, the number one mistake I see founders make is they don't come back and ask for what they need. They come in and they assume that everybody is going to know what they need right now. So they come and pitch an investor. The investor may or may not love the concept. They may or may not love the team. But they're they're rarely left as an investor. I'm rarely left with somebody saying, and this is what I need now. I'm ready to raise and I'd like to know if you would like to invest, right? Or I'm ready to, you know, hire my first employee and I'd like to know if you know the person that I should look at hiring or you can introduce me to that person. And so I think that asking that question is really, really important. And far too many people don't ask it. And by the way, this applies not just to fundraising, but to sales in general, really, um, that you, you need to ask that question because it's really the onus is on you as a founder to ask for the close, you know, to go in and sort of ask for what you need. And I think that far too many founders don't do that. And in particular around fundraising, I don't know if it's because of the money. I, I don't know why it is that it's so difficult to ask, but I know it's one of those things that it's not just a pet peeve. It's, it's something that it's a missed opportunity. And I did this to be clear in my first company after leaving live person, I went back probably six or seven times to this really amazing angel investor. He's the CEO of a pretty big company here in New York over and over. And he gave me all the time in the world. He gave me all the advice in the world. And like the fifth or sixth time, I was so frustrated. I was like, what would I need to do to get you to invest in my company? Like we spent all this time, every time you say you think it's really cool, you think it's really smart and you really want to help. And I said, what do you, what do I need to do to get you to invest? And he turned to me and he said, I didn't know you were raising any money. He said, if you're asking me to invest, I'm happy to invest. Like, who do I make the checkout to? And so I think that happens more often than people think when they go into this journey. So don't be afraid to ask that question. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with both pieces of advice. Jesse, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate having you on the show. No, thank you guys both so much. Uh, and I hope to see you uh, up in Canada at some point soon. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us a line, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.